The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Wooker Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Now, you better keep What's it in the closure here. He's not going to put Wild Bill Irwin in there, is he? I would suggest he's likely to... Oh! Behind the official's back! Now, what is that, big man? I think that's a message to Hunter Hearst Helmsley. That's what I think. He said, Hunter, that's your wake-up call for this weekend. Yeah, I think that's a telegraph, all right. And Wild Bill Irwin, right back in, underneath the bottom rope there, Duke comes to Grossie. As him seeing stars, I'm sure, or maybe uh, dumpsters, maybe trash cans. Well, why don't you go with it? A dumpster, you might say, the blue collar champion, if you would, of the WWF coming off the rope now in. Oh! A cover in! Yes, indeed. Freak out, the dumpster, continuing his winning way. you one way or the other look at this sit in that trash can would you oh my goodness on a collision course with hunter hurst helmsley this is the two-man power trip of wrestling and you are listening to another episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast the flagship of the tmpt empire if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner here on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast by my co-host the one and only jp john paz 
And John, joining us today is a throwback to the new generation era of the WWF, a longtime personal favorite of both of ours, as we welcome in the dumpster, Duke Drosy, making his debut here on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And uh, Duke the Dumpster is an absolute uh, throwback to that new generation era, an era that was looked at with a lot of uh, eyebrow raising at that point in history. But I think when we look back now, I think it's safe to say uh, the new generation era does not get the credit that it should for some of the characters that they had, but also some of the personalities that came out of the uh, the Federation's roster at that point and look no further than Duke the Dumpster Josie when you want to talk about personality. And even though he went away for a little while, he is back on the uh, the wrestling scene with a vengeance. And I'm sure that's what we're going to hear a lot about here today in this episode. So, John, I want to welcome you in here now. This conversation with Duke the Dumpster took a long time to kind of come to pass. But I know for a fact, uh, like I said, the personality, the stories that uh, the Dumpster has uh, leave a lot to uh, put you on the edge of your seat because he's got a hell of a lot of them. Yeah, it's just awesome to finally get the chance to get him on because he's such a good storyteller, he's such a good talker. I feel like a lot of people may know that, maybe a lot of people may not realize that about him, how much of a good storyteller he is and how much of a good talker he really is. Just because, you know, who knows with some of those new generation guys, I feel like they either get underrated or they get lost in the shuffle or it's almost like, oh, yeah, that era you know, before they really took off and hit the boom period. But that was kind of the era that you had a lot of these guys that were just huge. And, I mean, physically huge. And when men were men, so to speak. I mean, you had Billy Gunn and Bart Gunn. And you had Diesel and Razor Ramon and Mabel and all Yokozuna. And all these just gigantic guys. And you just think, like, man, these guys are just monsters. And they all had characters. And they all had certain amount of charisma they all just were kind of under the radar though for for definitely most of that period of time i feel like duke the dumpster fits in that category so well as far as an underrated guy just think about him and and just think like oh man you know he lasted wb for a couple years and he could have been more or or this or that but he was really happy with his run and, and you can't really take that away from him and you can't really take that away from any of those guys anytime you could say you're in the big leagues you're in the wb for or excuse me wbf at that point for a certain period of time it's just a great great feat and he was there for a good period and i love kind of getting into it with I'm like, all right, like, what was Vince like at this period? What was Pat Patterson like? What, what, you know, the character, where did that come from? You made it up, but, you know, how did they change it, tweak it? Who made up the name? And you learn a lot more about the backstage scene at this point in time and how Shane McMahon was a big part of it. So I thought that was a really, really cool part of the interview. Now, he's 6'6", he's 300 pounds. Today, he'd be considered an absolute monster. And he is no small man by any chance. But to think about, you know, that era, the new generation, everybody looks at that and says, oh, everybody had to have an occupation. Everybody had to have a goofy gimmick. And like I said in the uh, the top of this, you know, we look kind of back at that now. Like, you know, it really was kind of an endearing period of time for the WWF. It might not have been the best uh, in terms of business. But when you look back, I mean, they, they traveled probably more than they ever did at that point in the 90s. And the guys really, I mean, they worked themselves literally to the bone. And Duke the Dumpster in that perfect time frame of of marketing to the younger fans. I don't know. I feel like looking back, I don't know if it's rose-colored glasses or not, but I really feel like Duke the Dumpster played a key part during the new generation era. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And very, 
very, very remembered. One of those characters you just quite, frankly, quite honestly, you just can't forget. And I think what's really cool about that character is kind of how he got in the door at the WWF at that point. And you don't hear a lot of stories about this. You don't hear a lot of guys being able to even have the chance to do this. But he did it one-on-one with Vince McMahon at a, at a convention. It's like, wow, how the hell do you get in WWF? Oh, my God. Like, how the hell does that happen? So I just thought that was like a really cool little story that <clears throat> a lot of people probably don't know as well about getting in the door. But once you're in the door and you can make a name for yourself and make so many people remember you, like so many people were like, oh, the trash man, the garbage man, Duke the dumpster. I mean, it's just one of those things. If you're a wrestling fan, you're like, man, I remember that guy. I remember his feud with Triple H. And I think that's pretty damn cool. You mean the guy that helped put Triple H on the map? Yes, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> He's in that line of guys that Triple H worked with in 95, 96 that, you know, really – Helped him become uh, kind of who he was from a heel perspective, but um, kind of funny when you look at Duke the Dumpster. We uh, we joked about this a couple weeks ago. Another guy who uh, passed through the CWA, and another guy who had another successful run over there. So we continue the uh, the growing trend of guests on this show that had good runs over there uh, working uh, for CWA. Uh, if you think about it, I love that fact that we've not only had guys that we could talk to that wrestled CWA and played such a big role over there. I love the fact that these guys talk about it so glowingly, you know, as a fan, sometimes you're like, Oh, that's awesome. Uh, you wrestled there. You wrestled in Europe and your CWA and Autobots and stuff like that. And you're thinking like, Oh, I bet you some of the wrestlers either forget about it. Don't like it. Don't want to talk about it. Maybe think it's a little bit marky, but they're all seem pretty into it. I mean, Barry Horowitz loved it. Obviously, if you remember a couple of years ago, PN news, AKA cannibal Grizzly loved his time there. Obviously, he never left. He dumpster. loved it so much. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Only only till recently. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, but you just think about that and like that dumpster. So many guys, uh, Ryan. I mean, there's so many guys that were over there and they love their time over there. So it's pretty cool to be able to talk to that and then be able to speak about it so fondly and us, you know, kind of have a, a another kind of talking point where it's not just generic talk about certain things that you've heard a million times. So that you know, it's a cool different talking point. But I feel like with Duke the dumpster, anything thing with him it's not going to be like a regurgitated generic story he's such a good talker he's so funny he's got so much you know charisma so much sarcasm almost it's great any story he tells you know he's just gonna you know, amp it up and it's gonna be one hell of a story yeah absolutely and i know uh you know one of the great duke the dumpster stories is the heel turn that never was and hopefully that's uh Going to be a, a marquee uh, talking point here, so I don't mm-hmm. want to spoil yes. anything. But the, yes. uh, the the everybody has their price uh, moniker nearly placed in the hands of the dumpster. But I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm not going to not going to spoil it. Uh, but before, he does say he does say in, in the interview he wants he wanted to turn heel. He really wanted that. Can't imagine that. You know he did get uh, you know the South Pole uh, Santa Claus. So. You never know. Everybody does have their price. But before we wrap it up and before we get it into this interview with Duke the Dumpster, I mean, I don't know. You could give a keys to the game. You could give uh, what's a, a talking point to look forward to. Or how about maybe even uh, something that it kind of threw you off guard. You didn't expect to hear uh, coming from Duke. Ooh, that is a good one. Hmm. Let me think about that one. I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't know. You know, it's so interesting because there's so many good stories. I love the story of meeting Vince at the convention. Basically, Vince was somehow alone, which is crazy to think. Anywhere Vince in public would be like left alone, but he was able to make a connection with him. It's just awesome to talk about Shane McMahon 
and how he was kind of the missing man at this point with a lot of the new guys creating names, uh, producing vignettes. And like, basically, you know, he gives him the tape and Shane sees the tape and says, you know, man, I love it. And then they kind of come back and like, well, your name can't be Rocco Gibraltar. It's got to be this. And like the, how he comes up with the name. I mean, that's pretty cool. I just think maybe a cool thing is how close he was at this point to Stone Cold Steve Austin and how good of friends they were and how good of riding partners they were and how much beer they used to drink together. So maybe that is kind of a cool point because we get into the locker room at that point and what it was like and who he traveled with and who he wouldn't travel with and issues with the click. So I just thought that was kind of cool because you don't really think of like Stone Cold Steve Austin – you know, one of the greatest of all time, but you don't think of him. And at this point in time, when he was struggling and hated the ringmaster and was just, you know, like really, really fighting and clawing and Duke, the dumpster was right there with him fighting and clawing. You don't really think of Austin like that. Cause everyone immediately thinks attitude hour. He was so over, but he had a fight scratch and claw to get over. And Duke, the dumpster was there for him. We, you know, really on a ride for him and for real was on the road with him riding. That's awesome. Yeah, looking forward to this one. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun. So strap on your best uh, garbage can, your your best uh, overalls, and let's uh, let's get on the back of the truck and start heading towards this interview that we've got here today with Duke the Dumpster Drossy. So, hey, we want to remind you all the stuff going on in the TMPT Empire. We have rebuilt the TMPT website. It is now called TMPT Empire. Dot com. We've got a lot of great stuff over there. All the podcasts that we have under our umbrella are featured with individual pages, and the presence is growing as we uh, kind of work our way around there and see what kind of content we can bring out to the masses. And if you want to check out all the individual pages, there's one for us, the flagship TMPT interviews. There's one for the franchise Shane Douglas in the Triple Threat podcast over on the Russo brand. There's one for the J.J. Dillon podcast, and there's one for Eyes Up Here, Francine's, the Queen of Extreme Francine's podcast, uh, all under the TMPT empire, uh, having a lot of fun getting these shows out. Every show brings something different. And we want you to support us in any way that you can. So before we wrap it up here, nice, let's hit you with a little bit more of the TMPT business and get it on over to the garbage man himself, Duke the Dumpster Drossy. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a former CWA World Heavyweight Champion, 
He is a former WWF superstar in the new generation era. He is, of course, Duke the Dumpster Drossy. Please enjoy. CWA World Heavyweight Champion, as, a, as well as a former NWA Florida Heavyweight Champion. You may know him as a former WWF slash WWE Superstar. He is, of course, Duke, the Dumpster Drossy. Mr. Drossy, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, obviously, I think a lot of people do remember you from your time in the WWF, two to three years there in that time period, but... Kind of what are you doing today? Because I keep seeing you pop up, and it looks like a return in 2019. You return to wrestling and, and a return to kind of the quote-unquote sports entertainment business. Well, I'm doing it. You know, I'm kind of a weekend warrior right now. I'm doing it, uh, just having fun with it, doing weekend shows for the most part, doing autograph sessions, doing some wrestling uh, kind of on a limited basis because, of course, I had my left foot amputated in 2013, but I'm still able to get around and wrestle in a match. So um, that's what I'm doing as far as the wrestling business. Now I've got a regular weekday nine to five shoot job. I work for a drug court program here in middle Tennessee where I live. So that's what I do during the week. And then usually on weekends, I'll do something wrestling related, you know, whether it's a convention or going out and doing some wrestling shows. How does it feel kind of getting back out there? Cause if I remember correctly, you hadn't wrestled for quite a while. Yeah, it has been a long time. Uh, it's it's fun. It's fun just doing it. You know, there's no pressure involved. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to be in the big leagues or anything like that. I'm just, like I said, I'm having fun with it. And uh, so there's no pressure. Um, it definitely hurts, though. I'm not getting any younger. I'm damn 51 years old, so I feel it. But I've tried to get myself back into decent shape and before I started doing this. So I think I gave myself uh, – yeah, I made it easier on myself in that respect. But still, man, getting in that ring and doing what wrestlers do, it's it can be rough. So, But I'm not doing it all, every – day of the week like these guys are working full-time schedules and stuff so it's a lot easier now you mentioned the left foot being amputated you look like you're in tremendous shape is that kind of a a hard adjustment for you is it it obviously harder to wrestle you know being like that 
Uh, it is different. I cannot. I definitely cannot wrestle like I did, you know, in the mid '90s. There's a lot of things that I can't do just because the foot's not there and it's different. Uh, um, but I'm still able to move pretty well. Um, you know, I've the only real issues I've had <laughs> with the foot. I've had my prosthetic get caught in the ropes when somebody threw me out, or it hmm. got caught. It got caught in the stairs when I was walking up the steps one time. Uh, but I just had to kind of cover it up and keep moving. And uh, two, I think, I guess two weeks ago, I worked here locally in Pikeville, Tennessee, and I was wearing these boots, and they were kind of cheap, I guess, and high-tech magnums, and the soles ripped off of them when I was doing a corkscrew elbow, and it went shooting across the uh, oh, man. room we were wrestling in. So, yeah. so But, yeah, there's different issues with it, but I just kind of work around, and I'm learning it as, as I go, and I, I work around the issues that I might have. And I also see you winning championships. So not only are you back, you, you know, you make a return to the ring after a long time, but then you start winning championships. Yeah, I've been re- I've been working with this group, uh, as I was saying, Pikeville, Tennessee. It's uh, the TWA, Tennessee Wrestling Alliance. And, yeah, I had a match like last week and wrestled for the championship and won. So it's, you know, been fun. It's, it's I'm having a good time with it. Uh, and I like these guys because, you know, on any off weekends where I don't have something booked, they use me. So it's a nice little local place to work and get in the ring and try different things and continue improving on what I'm trying to do uh, in the ring. I think these guys are a lot different than your era, you know, like these new independent wrestlers. Yeah, it is different. It's a lot different. Um, you know, I, I think these guys, well, I can't say, I, I can't make a very general sweeping statement, but a lot of guys are worried about getting their stuff in and doing the high flying or whatever the case may be. But I will say with these guys at the TWA in Pikeville, uh, it's more geared towards old school, old style professional wrestling. And uh, I do enjoy that. And, you know, what's interesting with you is the, the WWF run. I think so many people remember you as, you know, Duke the Dumpster and, and making your debut in the WWF and, <clears throat> excuse me, and kind of getting your way in there. But how did you actually get into, before WWF, obviously, how did you actually get into the wrestling business? Is that something you always want to do? Were you kind of like a lifelong fan that always wanted to get in it? Um, I was pretty much a lifelong fan. <clears throat> I grew up down in Miami, Florida, and I watched championship wrestling from Florida. Uh, and then, of course, it got taken over by WCW, and I watched those shows. But then I remember WrestleMania one. my dad took me to a the Miami Beach Convention Center to watch WrestleMania one on closed circuit television because there was no pay-per-view in those days. You had to go to an arena and watch it Mm -hmm. on a big movie screen basically. And that was the moment I knew I wanted to do it. And, um, you know, while I was still in high school, I I found a wrestling school and basically started learning and slowly but surely got into the independent scene in Florida for quite a while. And, and then eventually worked my way up to uh, working for Vince McMahon. And as far as getting into the WWF, 
how did you actually kind of get in? Because there's always different stories from different guys about, oh, you know, they were recruited by Pat Patterson or Jerry Briscoe saw them or Vince himself, you know, somehow, some way, you know, recruited you. Like, did somebody actually recruit you into the WPF or how did you actually get in your, in the door? No, I didn't. I didn't really know anybody there. Uh, I mean, I knew Luna Vachon because she was just out of Florida and I knew her from the independent circuit just uh, kind of in passing. I wasn't good friends with her. But I knew I was going to have to do something different to get a shot because I really didn't know anybody. And what I did is I was already wrestling as the garbage man, mm-hmm. Rocco, yep. Rock, Rocco Gibraltar down in Florida. So I put together a promo package with tapes and a resume and photos and 8x10s and all that. And, and um, I was going to travel the country and pass them out to promoters and try to get booked. But then what happened was, before I was getting ready to leave, I read in the paper there was a convention in the Miami Beach Convention Center where it's called the NATPE Convention where they had the TV executives coming and trying to buy and sell TV time for different shows. And both the WWF and WCW were there. So I kind of hatched a plan to get in there. I knew somebody that worked for a local public access – or not public access, but a local station – and he was an executive, so I got his credentials, and I put on a suit, and I walked in there, and I walked right up to Vince McMahon at the WWF booth and shook his hand and introduced myself and talked to him for, you know, probably about what seemed like forever. It was probably about 45 seconds and handed him my promotional package personally and got the hell out of there. And uh, they called me, J.J. Dillon called me about a week later. That is great, and that's kind of a unique story. You don't hear too many people, first of all, being as smart as you and kind of figuring out, okay, they're going to be here. This is the best way to get in front of them, best way to see them. But then you throw in the fact that I don't know if any people are as ballsy as you to go up to Vince and be like, here's my promo reel. You know, I'd have that confidence, but be ballsy too. It's like, here's my promo reel. Here it is. And the funny thing about it is, is I didn't. Uh, I had a friend that was also a local wrestler down there. It was one piece of advice I always remembered. He said, "If you see Vince McMahon alone, you better jump on it because he won't be alone for long." And that was very true. He was off to the side drinking a cup of coffee, and um, you know, it all just kind of came together really fast, like literally overnight. I read one day that they were at the convention, and the next day I was putting on a suit and borrowing these credentials and walking through the front door. So I really didn't give myself time to get scared or intimidated. I just went and did it, you know? So that is just awesome because you don't even get a chance to right to get intimidated or get scared or, to, you know, pussy out of it. So yeah. You know, overthink it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Overthink it. That would be stupid. And uh, I mean, I probably, I don't know if I would have or not, but I didn't give myself a chance. I just went in there and just, did it. I think the only other guy to ever get hired kind of like that that I know of was Oscar from Men on a Mission. He did a rap for Vince in an elevator and he got <laughs> hired. So I think we're the only two. And then after that, they really started, you know, kind of keeping people away from Vince because they didn't, because word started getting out that people could walk up to Vince and get a job and they didn't want the, the hassle. So I think they just kind of started surrounding him better yeah have access to him yeah. yeah of course now obviously you got the call from jj J. Dillon. they they love the promo reel 
they love what they saw. What what like what's on there? Kind of describe like what exactly? Obviously the garbage man, but just describe kind of the, the character. Well, on the promo tape, what I did three things. The first thing I did was an interview for some make believe match. I was wrestling for a championship somewhere down there in Florida, and I just cut a promo where I was basically yelling. I sounded like Road Warrior Hawk because I was a big Road Warriors fan, and uh, I cut a promo. And then the next section of it was just a highlight reel with music over it that came out amazingly good for as low budget as we put it together. And then the final part I put on there was just an entire match so they could see me wrestle in a match and see, you know, kind of how my ring psychology worked and all that stuff. And uh, that's basically it. But, yeah, me and my brother put the tape together with two VCRs and an, and an eight – or a, yeah, I think it was an eight-track music recorder to lay music and stuff over it. And he did some sound effects like crowd cheering and stuff. But when we just, I just spliced together all these highlights on VCR tapes. Cause that's pretty much all there was back then. It was still a VCR era. So. That is great. That is so old school. And I kind of remember doing stuff like that. Not, not obviously at, at that level and that great, but like, you know, you got to use the VCR tapes, you got to splice in this and you got to do that. It's just funny. Like, the technology then just wasn't quite there, or we, or we didn't really have great access to it anyway. No, and I just I just did the best I could with what I had. And, and the funny thing about it is Shane McMahon came up to me at my tryout, and he asked me who did my tape. I said, me and my brother in his living room. Hmm. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me like I was crazy. So apparently it was good. It was, you know, a lot of it came together by luck, I will say that. So it was just it, – it turned out really good. It is awesome that Shane sees it because that, that means that they're kind of passing around. Everybody's getting a chance to look at it like, oh, look at this guy. Look at this tape. That's kind of pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was. Funny thing is I didn't even know who Shane McMahon was at that moment. You know, I was just being nice to everybody, but I didn't know who Shane was because when he talked about his dad, he called him Vince. And, huh. I, didn't, and I didn't know who Shane was. He was just coming up uh, and starting to work really a lot in the – company and what Shane was doing at that time was he was working for a certain period of time like in each division of the company and when I happened to get there he was working in the studio and he was the one that produced all my vignettes and stuff when I came in we drove around together in the early morning hours in Stamford Connecticut in winter in the freezing weather to cut promos and, and, and do the vignettes when I was coming to the WWF that is so cool, and I definitely want to talk about those vignettes in, in just one second. But when you actually kind of break through, and obviously everyone's seen the promo, J.J. Dillon calls you in, when does the the name change happen? You know what I mean? Like, when does Vince kind of sit down with you, and what does he say? Because apparently that's like his thing, right? He he wants to kind of brand you in, in the WWF. We here in the WWF want you to be this kind of thing. Well, yeah, and it wasn't Vince. It was Shane. It was Shane. The morning they flew me up to do vignettes, after I was hired and signed the contract, they flew me up to do vignettes to Stanford, Connecticut. And that morning I sat down with Shane, and he goes, yeah, we've been tossing around some ideas for names. Uh, I think we're going to go with Duke the Dumpster Drosy. And uh, that's my real last name. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my, my mom's going to be so proud. And uh mm-hmm. Yeah, Shane, Shane got to know me pretty quick because I have an interesting sense of humor. But he uh, he told me that, and, yeah, they changed the name, uh, obviously, so they could own licensing rights right. and everything to it. 
Um, but that was it. And then we just, we just put together ideas for vignettes. Uh, he wrote some of them. I wrote some of them and we were off to the races, but he was the one that informed me of the name change. As far as the gimmick, you were doing Rocco, the garbage man before they obviously like what they saw from the tape. They, they like it. You're comfortable with the gimmick. Were you kind of surprised at all that they didn't really change much or were you, you thinking that that's kind of the general direction it was going to go? When I came up with the idea, um, I, it all started from just having a name. I was in a fraternity at the University of Miami, and the, the fraternity brothers, one of the fraternity brothers gave me the name Rocco Gibraltar. And I always just saved that in the back of my mind. But eventually, you know, I was just kind of sitting in my room at college one day, and I was, you know, I was working part-time on the independent circuit. Um and I was trying to come up with a new idea and a gimmick and a character. And I, I knew I wanted to use Rocco Gibraltar. So I said, I started coming up with ideas that kind of rhymed. And I, the one I came up with was G-Man Rocco Gibraltar. And I was like, okay, is he going to be a G-Man like a federal agent? Or is he going to be a G-Man like the garbage man? And then that's when I decided, I said it would be perfect for Vince McMahon's you know, late 80s, early 90s, WWF. He loves having big blue-collar baby faces, um, you know, and, and having a guy that the working man could relate to. It was perfect, and I knew it would be perfect. And that's when I started working on it in Florida and working on getting it over and figuring out how I wanted to do it. And, yeah, they just picked right up with it, and just all they did was change the name. And carried around the trash can and then you had those cool vignettes was that a lot of fun hanging out with shane and doing those vignettes and got it kind of being able to show your creativity yeah it was it was a really cool experience uh he allowed me to do he allowed me to come up with a lot of stuff he used basically everything i came up with and then he added a couple i think he came up with the one that was like uh the michael jordan commercial where he bounce off the thing and whatever off the side of the wall and mm -hmm. nothing but net. And I did that thing at the dump. I threw it over the building off the payloader off the dumpster and, and straight in the garbage or whatever it was. He came up with that one. And I think he may have, he came up with a couple where I was up in the middle of this huge pile of garbage kind of promo. And, uh, and then I came up with the rest of them. As far as when you get in the door, and you're first starting in the WWF. Is that intimidating at all? Is the locker room something that is a concern, or is everybody welcoming you in with open arms? All the boys welcome you in with open arms. They're all really cool. I mean, of course, it's you got to be very careful because it's a very competitive atmosphere. But no, all the boys were really cool. It was it was it was a surreal experience being in a locker room with a lot of guys that I kind of grew up watching or came up through my own wrestling years watching as I was trying to get ready. They were the stars and, but no, they were all really cool with me. Um, the person, the one person I had a problem with in the beginning was chief J Strongbow. He, he, for some reason felt like he needed to bully me like, cause I was the new guy or something. I don't know, but um, he was kind of a dick, but uh, other than that, everybody else was pretty cool. Um, it's a very interesting dynamic when you first come in 
you know, as you said, I was working on this gimmick in Florida for so many years and I was getting it over and I came in and tried to do a lot of the same things and immediately certain people tried to change things like Chief J. Strongbow and other agents were trying to change the way I did things. Um, and I was so worried about pissing people off. I changed a lot of things in the beginning and, uh, and it just didn't work for me. So, uh, I started changing back, you know, uh, different things that I would do and the way that I would work in the ring and, and the way that I would get the crowd behind me. And, um, but it was, it was interesting. And I was definitely kind of marked out when I first started just being in the locker room with a lot of those other guys. And that was a cool experience. Anybody that you kind of gravitated to early on and became a good friend or traveling buddy or roomie with? The very first guys I rode with were uh, Adam Baum and Bob Holly. And what I did is I tried to just kind of work around and meet different people and ride with different people to find who I could mesh with. I I rode with the Doink and Dink the Clown and Luna Vachon in a car one time. Boy, that was an interesting experience. Um, (laughs) I rode with most of the guys at different times. Uh, There was times I rode with some of the Click members like Shawn Michaels and, you know, Scott Hall and, some of those guys, but that wasn't too often. I rode with X-Pac. Well, he was one, two, three kid then. We rode together on a couple of things. Um, I rode with the, the uh, Smoking Guns, Billy Gunn and Bart Gunn uh, in the beginning quite a bit. And then later on, as I moved as I moved along, I started riding with Bret Hart for quite a while, and I rode with Steve Austin quite a bit. That was later on after uh, Austin would come in. Did you kind of gravitate to certain guys personality-wise or just easier to travel with them? Or well, what's the psychology kind of behind certain guys you travel with sometimes and then kind of switching off and traveling with other guys? Um, it seemed like me and Austin were like two peas in a pod, man. We were – it was just constantly cutting up, having a good time. We both liked to drink beer and – do a few other things here and there and and just have a good time. And uh, he was kind of the same, same way I was. Um, I rode with Brett. He was, he was different. Uh, when I rode with Brett, it was because I was really frustrated and I was really looking to him to get some advice. So I rode with him for a while, but it really was, you know, he was really quiet a lot of the time and, and stuff like that. But, Always had a good time with Austin. You know, guys like when, when the Road Dog first came in, um, you know, uh, when he was the roadie, uh, he was always fun to hang with. We didn't really ride that much, but in the locker room, he was a trip. Uh, and those tend to be the kind of people I would hang out with, the guys that were funny, that had a good time, that didn't take themselves too seriously, because that's the way I was. Did you ever think Steve Austin, the guy, you know, you rode with and stuff, did you ever see that potential? Like, well, yeah, he's going to be the biggest star in the business one day. Uh, I knew he was going to be big. A lot of us did. And it's funny because I, <laughs> I used to tell him that. I said, dude, just because, you know, when you first start out, they kind of test you for, uh, you know, a year or two years or even three years before they really get behind you and start pushing you. In a lot of cases, they'll test you in different ways. They'll test your attitude. They'll test your work ethic. They'll test a lot of things. And early on, he he was just Austin was just like everybody else. He, he 
you know, he wasn't getting any huge push. He had that horrible gimmick as the ringmaster, and he hated it. And, and you could tell, and he was getting frustrated. And I used to always just, we'd be like at the bar or in the hotel room, and we'd be talking, and I'd say, dude, you ain't got shit to worry about. They're going to fucking push you to the sky. And he was like, there's no way. He would always ask me how I knew that. And it's funny because, first of all, everybody knew he was going to be something big. But um, then, of course, later on, I would ride with either him or I'd ride with Bret Hart, and Bret Hart started talking about him. And when that happened, I knew it was just a matter of time before Bret wanted to work with him. So I used to tell him, because he was always kind of unsure, it seemed. He was like, how do you how do you know that? And I was like, just trust me. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, you know, it came to be. And, of course, he took it and just it blew it up, man. And uh, became, yeah, literally, I would say, the biggest star in the wrestling business, I would say. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, for sure. And then, of course, on the other end of the coin, Vince himself, later on down the road, became one of the biggest characters as far as being a heel in Mr. McMahon. But what was he like behind the, behind the scenes? Is, is he that evil genius that everyone kind of says he is? What were your opinions of Vince? Vince is a very interesting person. Uh, when people would ask me that question, you know, a lot of people are very bitter with their treatment and, and the things that Vince did from a business perspective. I always said Vince was a very shrewd businessman, and it's true. Um, he, there were oftentimes Vince would make promises to people and then not fulfill the promise. You know, he would go back and do something else. But if you really look at the wrestling business, and you understand how it works, you realize, you know, Vince could make a promise to somebody one day, and then literally some things happen in the company that changes the direction overnight that makes them, forces them to have to change direction overnight. And they don't share all this information with all the boys. You know, they, you know, they kind of keep their cards close to the vest, uh, they don't want to let too much information out. But in that way, there were, there were lots of times when Vince would seemingly go back on promises, and that's where people would get pissed off. I was one of them. You know, he basically, the way I saw it, he was promising me a big push right before the Triple H thing started. But then, you know, it just happened the way it did, and then I kind of got all bent out of shape about it and didn't handle it right. And then I went right back to doing what I was doing before that, which was putting over all the new heels that came in. So I got really frustrated and basically talked myself out of the company. But you see why a lot of guys get very angry and bitter over it, but if you really understand what's going on, you understand how Vince works. He is a genius I wouldn't necessarily say an evil genius. I would say he's a genius. He's obviously made the professional wrestling business what it is today, and he has constantly he has survived a lot of nuclear bombs against his company, and still he has always survived. So regardless of what anybody wants to say bad about him, he was a very shrewd businessman, but he was a genius, is a genius. Um, and uh, he, you know, he just did what he had to do for his company. And that's it. Hey, let's pause one second to tell you all about 
the benefits of using Blue Chew. Guys, remember the days when you were ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in the bedroom with a little help from the Triple Threat Podcast and the two-man power trip. So listen up, bluechew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they are chewable, they work up to twice as fast as any other pill, so you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. Now, if you know anything about our show, we've always got to be ready. But with Blue Chew, if you can benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, then Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Most guys talk a good game, but Blue Chew helps you follow through. So right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com, get your first shipment for free when you use the promo code FRANCHISE and just pay $5 shipping again. Use the promo code FRANCHISE and pay just $5 shipping. Again, it's BlueChew.com, B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Use the promo code FRANCHISE and try it for free, courtesy of your friends over at the two-man power trip of wrestling and the Triple Threat Podcast. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, and faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring our podcast. And as far as that Triple H feud, it was a really long time feud with you and Triple H, and really Triple H was kind of undefeated for a bit before that. You were really his first loss, and obviously, you know, the, the Royal Rumble match in 96, Superstars. What were your kind of thoughts of Triple H at that point as you're going along in this long, bitter feud with him? Professionally, I respected Triple H and his work. Uh, I enjoyed working with him. He was always willing to do anything, try new things in the ring. Um, But he was protected, and I resented that. He was part Mm. of the clique, and I viewed him in a lot of ways as an ass-kisser because he was part of that clique. Um, and And again, this is another thing. I've come to terms with the fact that looking in hindsight now, looking back at the way I acted, and regardless of what he did or who he was friends with, he handled his business perfectly. Um, you know, I often talk to people nowadays that are new, new in the business coming up and they ask for advice. And one of the pieces of advice I always give people is if you get a chance and you get, get up to a major company, look around, figure out who's got the power and be buddies with them. Because mm. that's, that is a fact. That is the way it works. If you've got powerful friends, you'll get uh, great opportunities. Um, so, you know, he aligned himself with those guys because he saw, he, you know, when he first came in, Triple H rode with a lot of guys too. I watched him. He rode with like Cactus Jack. He rode with Man Mountain Rock. He rode with these guys he knew from WCW. But eventually he smartened up and realized, okay, he needs to hang with the click. And um, Scott Hall took a liking to him. I remember sitting at TV watching the monitor with Scott Hall, watching uh, Triple H wrestle somebody. And Scott Hall saying, I think I'm going to make him a project of mine. That was Scott's words. Exactly. And then after then, you you know, all of a sudden he was riding with those guys and, you know, he was getting better pushers and he was protected. Like I said, you know, it's interesting. People people always talk about me being the first loss Triple H had, Mm -hmm. you know, he he lost by DQ (laughs) and it was (laughs) a goofy finish because at the time, I guess the president or the commissioner was Gorilla Monsoon. So, we were wrestling in this free-for-all match. I guess it was before the SummerSlam or Royal Rumble. It was before the Rumble pay-per-view was coming because it determined who went in first and who went in 30th. 
we wrestled this free-for-all match, and he hit me with brass knucks, and he pinned me. And Gorilla came out and disqualified him. So I won the match. So he had to go in first, and I had to go out 30th. Yep. But, you know, but I went out 30th, and he got eliminated within a few minutes, whereas he went out first, and he lasted quite a while, which made him stronger, you know, and that was actually a better story for him. But, yeah, the only way I beat him was by count out. Um, there were times where I pinned him when we were in the feud and we were working a lot of house shows together because we were trying different things, and they would put me over sometimes. Um, but I knew on pay-per-view I wasn't going to beat him. I was not – I was not um, – I, I was not stupid. I I knew how it worked. And I remember sitting in a limousine one time with Shawn Michaels before our pay-per-view, before I had the pay-per-view match with Triple H, because I was just kind of talking about some of my concerns. Aiden, it was interesting the way Shawn was kind of listening to me, but I looked at Shawn right in the eyes and I said, listen, Shawn, I'm not stupid. I know I'm not going over on Hunter. And he just kind of looked at me and goes, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. But we can do it in such a way where I don't get killed, you know. And then, of course, they came up with that stupid fuck finish where he hit me with the lid and all that stuff. And and it just didn't seem like we were going anywhere else with it. And I got really frustrated. But I wasn't, you know, I, I knew how it worked for the most part. I just didn't conduct myself very well after that point. But, uh, yeah, my only win, my win, my breaking his winning streak was by disqualification. Yeah. That is true. And then not only does he kind of keep beating you in the feud, he cuts your hair, then you lose again at In Your House 6 pay-per-view. It definitely was going in his favor, so to speak. You know, that was a funny story. I I remember, you know, I was having meetings with Vince as we're working up to it, and I just kept saying, you know, they said, we're, we're going to put you in this feud and whatever, and I was, I was getting into really good physical shape. And uh, they Vince always appreciated that. I just remember sitting there and I said, you know, I'm, I would kind of like to get away from being the happy-go-lucky hillbilly Jim garbage man character. I'd like to turn heel, and I'd like to change my appearance. And immediately we were sitting there, and it was me, it was Vince, I think Jerry Briscoe was there, and I know Jim Ross was there. And Jim Ross chimed in, and this is before I knew Jim Ross was taking over talent relations. He hadn't taken it over yet, but he's getting ready to. But he chimed in, and he goes, well, why don't we do this? He said, why don't we set up an angle where Triple H cuts your hair, and uh, we can turn your heel after all this is said and done, and we turn your heel, and you got your new appearance, but we we can use it to heat up the angle. And I looked right at Vince, and I said, Vince, I'm willing to do this, as long as I get some kind of revenge. And I said, I know I'm not going to cut his hair, but as long as you give me some revenge that makes me look strong in the end so I can move on. And Vince said, yes, absolutely. So this is one of the instances where I felt like he kind of went back on a promise. But he said, yes, absolutely. And that was my expectation. And then, again, we got to the pay-per-view, and the night before, one of the agents calls me and goes, oh, he's going to hit you in the face with the lid and pin you. (laughs) I went, wow. You know, and then nothing. And then they put him with Mark Merrow. Well, then they put him, then he lost to the Ultimate Warrior in 12 seconds or whatever it was. And then they put him with Mark Merrow, so I knew I was done with that. So, but yeah, that's how it all went down. Interesting, the, the inner politics that go on, and especially things promised, things changed, 
the protected guys versus not protected, the politics. It's funny, the, the backstage atmosphere in wrestling, that you don't really, as a fan, don't realize that it exists until that, like, you know, that intense point. You don't realize it. One of the biggest things is people don't realize getting into this business is, man, you got to have a thick skin. you got to be able to handle rejection and, and, and people going back on promises, and you got to handle it properly and not lose your shit. Because I started losing it, man. I started getting really irrational and pissed off. And, of course, I, started, I was drinking more and I was doing more drugs, and it just kind of escalated. And, uh, you know, I think during that time with Triple H and the house show, I, I injured my back on top of everything else, so I really started taking way too many painkillers. So I wasn't in my right mind. So there were some instances where I had interactions with Vince where I was probably talking out my ass. And... um you got to be able to handle this stuff. You got to keep your, your head straight. Um, you can't be getting high and drunk and acting stupid. You got to be a business. You got to be all business, and you got to handle yourself in a very professional manner, and be able to handle a little bit of rejection, man, because it comes, and you can't let it eat you up. Because there's a lot of very frail egos in the wrestling business. And if you're one of those people, you're not going to make it because you're going to get your little feelings hurt the first time somebody goes back on a promise, and you'll never make it. So, you know, now that's not to say just let people stomp all over you either. You know, one thing I learned, and it's funny, I told Scott and Kevin Nash this. I saw them not too long ago, and I said, you know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of other wrestlers doing shoot interviews, and they just completely blast the click they hate them and they're still bitter to this day 20 plus years later they're bitter and they hate the click members and i was that way early on but i came to the realization with all the stuff i went through personally was the realization i came to was anybody can get themselves over and it's your responsibility to do so there are even if they're not giving you the biggest push to the moon and making you the biggest star, you can go out there and tear the house down every night, even in a losing effort. It's not about how you, it's not about losing. It's about how you lose. I think uh, Kurt Hennig used to say that it's not about losing. It's about how you lose. And uh, anybody can take certain steps to get themselves over and raise their own stock. And that was something I was not smart to at the time. Um, and that was a conversation I had, like I said, with Kevin and Scott. I was like, you know, I used to hate you guys, but the reality is if I wanted to change my situation, I could have. You know, I could have started getting myself over even in losing efforts. And they just kind of looked at me and they're like, you're exactly right. <laughs> That's the truth. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how much money, yes, they had power. They had a lot of power. But, you know, Vince always had this saying, the cream always rises to the crop and, or to the top. And that is so true, even in the wrestling business where you're depending on somebody else pushing you, a promoter, you can still get over. Um, that's why you see guys that are so good in this business, even though they get beat down by whatever promoters and companies they work for, people still talk about them, and there's always opportunities for them because they're really good. They're really good in the ring, and they know how to get themselves over. Like, Look at a guy like Dolph Ziggler. I mean, I, I call him the modern-day Kurt Hennig. He's he's a really good wrestler. I've never met him personally. I just, when I watch him wrestle, there's just something a lot different than most of the other guys or girls that are working right now. 
Um, he is head and shoulders above most people uh, in terms of talent. Um, so, you know, you can get yourself over. You just got to figure out how to do it. And you got to be professional, like I said. And uh, I was I was lacking in a lot of those departments back when I was there. And it, it ended up – it didn't end well for me. So – now you kind of keep saying it didn't end well for you. Is that because of the way you wanted to leave or they wanted you to go? Was it like a mutual thing? Like what was the kind of the, the problem there? I mean, obviously you, you become more uh, pissed off and you become more angry and you don't like was, the direction, but what, what's the, what's their attitude towards you? And it was, yeah. And it was really interesting because see, during this time, as I said before, I was irrational and I was still having these meetings at TV with Vince. I would demand having a meeting with him and, uh, he would always, he would meet with me, but he would always have Jerry Briscoe sitting next to him. Like he was worried that I was going to try to do something. I, I don't think I was that irrational, but I was just hmm. pissed off. And I always felt like I could speak my mind to Vince because of the way I walked up to him and just spoke to him when I got my job, you know? Mm-hmm. So be, because of that, I felt like I could always just talk to him and mm, you got to be careful the way you do that. And there was, there was a moment, I'll never forget, and I've told this story before. There was a moment where I was just really frustrated, and they were beating me. I think it was around the time where Mankind beat me on TV, and I don't remember who else. And then eventually T.L. Hopper beat me. And mm-hmm. I just went to Vince. I stood right in front of him with Jerry Briscoe standing next to him. I said, if you're not going to use me any better than this, just send me home because I'm sick of it. And Vince kind of looked at me like I was crazy. Um, You know, one of the big rules in wrestling is don't ever take yourself out of the game. And I was basically doing that right in front of him. I was taking myself out of the game. And he came up with a different option. He said, how about if I send you to work in Memphis, Tennessee for a while? You know, which is kind of a demotion. But the funny thing about it is he offered to pay me like a grand a week, which was way more than I was making at that time because – I was barely on TV and I wasn't on the road. So I was like, that sounds great. I'd love to do it as long as you put it in writing. And I think that was the thing that killed me. As soon as I said that, he had this look on his face. And he didn't say anything. He said, yes, of course. But then I think at the next TV, he sent Briscoe into town. Supposedly, I don't even know if this is for sure, but Briscoe came up to me in the locker room. He said, Vince said you can go ahead on home. And I think we were in like Vancouver and uh, I remember cause I was, and I was hanging with Austin. I remember we went to the hotel that afternoon and I shaved the rest of the hair off of my head and uh, we just got drunk and I hung around, I think an extra day just laying by the pool drunk. And then the day after that uh, I got on the plane home and didn't look back, but that's how it happened. And I don't even know if Vince really told briscoe that because it was weird later on i had guys calling me saying dude you were booked to be in europe you're on the booking sheet so you know maybe briscoe just came up and took it upon himself to send me home with without vince's okay or maybe vince never even said that and i you know these are all things i would think about later on but that's how it went down um you know, I kind of tried to make a stand and vince basically or the office in general they just called me on it and said well okay go ahead on home and you don't realize how 
horrible of a feeling that is when 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 Briscoe said you can go ahead on home. I ain't gonna lie, man. I choked up a little bit. I mean, I kept my shit together. I didn't cry in front of him or nothing, but I felt this feeling, sinking feeling in in my gut because I realized, holy shit, it's probably over. <laughs> and uh, then that's when I started really getting drunk and and messed up on drugs. But that's how it all went down, man. That is crazy, kind of the way it can happen. Boom, just like that in an instant and just be gone from the WWF just like that. Did you ever think of maybe just saying, okay, if you guys say I'm on the booking sheet for Europe and then all of a sudden just end up you know, back backstage or whatever and, and, and take that trip to Europe? Did you ever kind of think of that? Any regrets there? Well, I heard about the booking sheets later on, so it was it was well past when it happened. Oh, okay. And I and of course I was still I was messed up and paranoid, and I thought guys were just trying to wind me up anyway. But later on, I did try to come back, and to kind of teach me a lesson, they made me try out again. Like I had to try out in dark matches. I wrestled Paul Diamond, I think, in one, and I wrestled uh, Pierre, you know, PCO. Mm-hmm. I wrestled oh, yeah. him. I wrestled him in another one. And they weren't the greatest matches, I mean, in the world. And and again, I was just so far out there, man. I I, I was in no condition to come back. It's probably a good thing I didn't go back because if I did, and the fact that they really weren't drug testing at that time, 1998 or so, you know, I probably would end up being one of the dead guys. But I did try to go back, and I also went and tried out one night at a Nitro in a dark match for WCW. And it wow. didn't go well either. Yeah, it's on the internet too, somewhere. Do you remember kind of the circumstances of being able to get the dark match with WCW? Um, JJ Dillon brought me in after I kind of just walked in the back one day at a, at a Nitro. I just walked in in a suit, you know, kind of like the way I walked up to Vince. Well, I did the same thing at Nitro. I just walked in and... uh all the guys came up and they were real nice to me because they thought the office brought me in, but nobody brought me in. I just walked in <laughs> and uh, JJ Dillon came up and handed me his card and said, you need to call me and we're going to, you know, we want to bring you up and do this and do that and blah, blah, blah. And I think in the next couple of days, everybody started realizing, Hey, nobody brought him up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but they still gave me a tryout and then JJ brought me up for that tryout. And, um, you know, like I said, it wasn't a great match. I didn't wrestle as the dumpster or nothing. I just wore a singlet, and I wrestled this dude that was kind of, you know, not very – he was kind of stiff. Moved, he moved around, like, stiff in the ring, and some stuff went wrong, and I kind of kicked him a few times, and I think they didn't like that too much. Arn Anderson called me a crowbar after that, and – uh, Yeah, so I didn't do too well there either. And then I just really just went off off the grid, I disappeared for like the next 23 years. I was gone <laughs> for 20 something years, but yeah, that was it. Well, a brief return in 2001 was the WWF for the WrestleMania 17 battle Royal, but then basically gone. Yeah, I sure. I, <laughs> yeah, I was in no condition to be there, but it was pretty cool. Uh, WrestleMania 17, uh, walking out in front of that crowd. Uh, but it was awkward in the back because I was so different, man. I had lost a lot of weight cause I was really strung out on drugs. Um, 
I was at that time going to a methadone clinic in Miami, so I had to get extra methadone to take with me so I didn't get sick, dope sick. And uh, it was just weird, you know. I didn't really – I was. I felt embarrassed, so I really didn't hang around with a lot of the guys and talk to a lot of the guys. I just kind of kept to myself. I mean, I spoke to some of the guys I was friends with a little bit, but then that was it. Um, and then went out and did that match and just kind of got paid and got the hell out of there. That's kind of how that worked. But that was my WrestleMania moment. <laughs> I was strung out on drugs, yeah. Shit, yeah. <laughs> not good and not, not a great uh, kind of – memory of WrestleMania that moment. How did they get in touch with you to be a part of it? Was it one of those things where, you know, Vince reaches out or no. Vince reaches out? No, no, they didn't reach out to me. I reached out to them. It was, uh, I was working in Florida with a small company. I, I had a wrestling ring and I was kind of working with these guys, kind of helping them, helping them book. I was setting the ring up. I was wrestling some and, and, um, one of the other wrestlers, came up to me one day. He goes, you know, they're having a gimmick battle Royal. You need to be in that. And I was like, and I was kind of blowing him off and he kept pushing me because you need to call Bruce. So I finally just went ahead and called Bruce and Bruce was like, where have you been? You know, like, like they'd been mm-hmm. looking for me or something, but he said, yeah, we can use you. And, um, they brought me up for it. And obviously, you know, you had a lot of drug issues then, and a lot of you know, problems with that kind of stuff. Is that a big issue or was a big issue in the wrestling business, but not just you, but a lot of guys then? Well, yeah, and it's it's interesting because when I was there, when I first started, they were drug testing, very strict drug testing policy. Um, but there was a loophole. You could not take steroids. You could not take illegal drugs like smoking pot or doing cocaine or any of that stuff. But the loophole was you could take any prescription drugs you wanted as long as you wrote it down on the drug test sheet when you were taking a drug test. They would ask you, what medications are you taking? As long as you wrote it down, you didn't have to show them a prescription. And, of course, I lived in Miami, brother, so I knew all kinds of people selling pills on the street. So I had – and a lot of times when we were down in Texas, we'd go across the damn border to Mexico and get – tons of drugs and the thing is you just write it on the sheet and they wouldn't check see if you had a prescription for it everybody was taking somas and like nobody had prescriptions for somas um so yes it became a bad it became an issue for me uh you know a lot of guys were married and had kids and when they would go home from the road they would become a dad or a husband i didn't have any of that i went home and partied more with my buddies and went back on the road and still partied and uh it was a, that, that's what became such a big problem for me. Um, interestingly, about a year after I left, I was still talking to some of the guys. Savio, we were talking. I was talking to Savio on the phone, Savio Vega, and he goes, "There's no more drug tests." I was like, "What?" He goes, "There's no more drug tests." They sent out a memo saying that it costs too much to drug test people. It's not cost effective, or something was the word they, they used. And I just remember telling Savio, I said, this is going to be bad <laughs> because yeah. I knew, I knew how some of those guys were partying. And if you take if you drop the reins and you let them, if you cut them loose to start doing illegal drugs, I said, it's not going to be good. And that's when all these guys start dying. It's because guys were really going crazy off using illegal drugs and dying in hotel rooms and all that stuff. So in a lot of ways, when I talk to people about the way I 
unceremoniously left the wrestling business, I have to look back and realize, man, maybe it was for, maybe it was good that I wasn't there when they quit drug testing because I was one of the craziest ones out there, you know, so I can't imagine what could, what would have happened. So maybe it was for the better, you know, maybe that's why I'm still here, but you know, all these experiences I look back on and I, I regretted a lot for a long time, but I don't anymore. I don't, I don't regret it. Uh, you know, I learned a lot <laughs> about life in general and I'm able to talk to people nowadays and, try to help people that are having some of the same kinds of struggles. And on occasion, during some of these weekend shows, I get to talk to some of the young guys coming up in the business and give them a little bit of advice, you know. But And, again, I'm just having fun with it. But I learned a lot, and I don't regret things anymore. Um, you know, I had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way. But I think it was all meant to be. So it is what it is, and I'm glad that I'm still here. Absolutely, definitely. And as we head towards the wind down, we head towards the finish. I mean, you've wrestled. We mentioned a lot of guys you wrestled, but there's so many other guys, especially in the WWF time period, where there's such good workers and, and, and good hands and just big, great names. Just even throw out guys like um, Brooklyn Brawler and, and Harry Horowitz and Adam Baum and all these guys that you wrestled in WWF. I mean, Diesel and, and obviously we mentioned Triple H stuff. Do you have some favorite matches looking back? Um, you know, working with, with, uh, Pierre, uh, when he came back as Jean-Pierre Lafitte, the pirate mm-hmm. gimmick, yep, yep. he was, he was always, matter of fact, somebody just posted a house show match between me and him at Rutherford, East Rutherford. Uh, it was always fun to work with him. Uh, I worked with the hog farmer just a couple times and that was really fun. I only worked with Austin once, maybe or twice or something. Um, it was funny because we always rode together, but uh, we never really worked. But when we did, it was funny. We just kind of laughed the whole time. Um, you know, guys like that, any time I could work. Back when Savio was Quang, we always had fun. Um, that was pretty much uh, – I had the opportunity to work with Owen – and yep. Davey, Davey Boy, they were a tag team against me and Bob Holly on a couple of occasions, and that was fun. So, yeah, there was a lot of interesting people. But I never got to work with the top-tier guys like a Shawn Michaels or an Undertaker or a Bret Hart. Of course, because I was stuck in the babyface role for so long, I didn't get a chance to work with those guys. But um, I wish I, I would have had an opportunity to work with like a Shawn Michaels or a Bret Hart for sure. You have, you know, a different time frame or they, you know, maybe they turned to heel or something. You definitely would have been able to work with those guys and that would have been awesome. Big man, kind of little man stuff would have been great. Is that something that you, you know, you like playing the heel or you prefer the heel or, or was something where you were just more comfortable playing the face? Well, if I could do it over, if I could go back and do it over, one thing I would have done was came in as I remember that, it was actually, and again, it was during the time when Shane McMahon and I were sitting at that desk at the studio, and he, he was telling me about the name, and he kind of asked me if I wanted to be a babyface or a heel. And I remember telling him I wanted to be a babyface because I was so used to working as a babyface down in Florida. Um, but I, you know, looking back, 
I realized some of the biggest baby faces in that company started as heels. Um, it's a whole lot easier to make people hate you than make people like you. And with the direction that that company was slowly moving in at that time, you know, they were towards the Stone Cold era, the Rock era later on. Um, if you were one of these cookie-cutter good guys smiling and putting the thumbs up and all that, it got old really fast. Um, I mean, look what they tried to do with The Rock as Rocky Maivia. Uh, luckily, he took a hold of it and changed it and became a heel in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I just feel like it's easier to come in and start as a heel and uh, then make the turn to the big baby face, let the crowd almost turn you, and uh, you get over that much bigger. As far as Duke the Duff Drosy or, or just you in general in wrestling, what do you think is the lasting legacy when people kind of look back at Duke the Duff Drosy or look back at your you and your career and everywhere you've been and how long you wrestled and everything like that? What do you think is kind of the stamp that you leave behind on wrestling? Well, I, mean, I think I was an interesting character during an interesting time. Um, you know, a lot of the feedback I get from fans nowadays, interestingly, is, man, you were a really big dude that could really move well in the ring, um, and they stuck you with a shitty gimmick, which they didn't stick me with it. I came in with it, but it was just kind of the way things were then. But I was an interesting character during an interesting time. I guess people are kind of saying that was part of the golden era of wrestling, which I don't know about that. I, it was the new generation era is what it was, yeah, unfortunately. Exactly. Yep. But um, I was there with a lot of interesting people, had, had a lot of fun. I learned a lot about the business and myself, and, and I think for the most part that'll be my lasting legacy. Um, because of the lessons I've learned, I'm able to have fun with it now and interact with fans in a much different way, and there's there's no expectations. I'm not trying to get rich or anything. I'm just having fun and being myself, uh, and I think that's probably the most important legacy that can come from all of this is – where I have ended up now. That's the most important thing. That is very cool. And and as far as now, and are you very happy with, with kind of what you're doing now and being able to wrestle part-time? Is is that something that's very just relaxing for you and very kind of cool to kind of, you know, be that, that veteran presence in the locker room and stuff and be that veteran presence in life, really? Yeah, it is. It's fun now. I'm having a great time with it. Um you know, I'm not I'm not trying to make some big move back to the big time, big leagues. And, and the locker rooms have always been fun places, whether it was the locker room in the WWF or a locker room here locally at Pikeville, Tennessee. It's still fun to get in there and talk to people uh, at different levels of this business, the newcomers, the guys that have been around a while. It's always fun to be there. And, and yes, I am having fun with it now. And I just want to say, as far as looking back at your career, I remember just like, man, this is a big guy. He's huge. He can move well. He works well. You know, Vince kind of likes those big guys. It's just that, you know, you never know what's going to happen backstage. I guess the politics and stuff, but it's just like, man, this guy is a huge guy, but a great worker. So I remember I was always thinking, I was like, yeah, the the gimmick kind of worked for that era. That was a new generation era and that those larger than life characters, but I thought you worked well for that era and, and, and did pretty damn good. I mean, not a lot of guys have the, you know, the three-year run that you had in WBF, so, or almost three-year run. So, you know, you kind of have to say, wow, it's a pretty impressive. 
Well, I appreciate that. You know, it was it was fun. It was fun while it lasted. Um, you know, I don't have this illustrious 20 or 30 year WWF career, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. It's it's all good. Um and uh it was fun while it lasted. I had a great time there and made a lot of good friends and I'm reconnecting with a lot of these people now. I talking to Stone Cold again for the first time in ages. I'm mm. talking to Savio and other wrestlers on the phone and sometimes through social media and stuff like that. The social media is an amazing thing because I did literally disappear for a long time. So when I came back, the whole social media thing was new to me. But, yeah, it's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, and uh, it's just it's good. I'm happy to be alive, and I'm happy to still be here, man, and and I'm going to continue to have fun with it. And as far as social media and plugs and things of that nature, where can the fans kind of reach you and, and kind of you know, reconnect maybe with Duke the Dumpster? Well, I'm on Facebook quite a bit. I've got a private account, Mike Drosy, which is full. The friends are full, but you can still come follow me on it. But I also got a fan page. It's Duke the Dumpster Official and a lot of my stuff gets posted up there. That's the Facebook. I'm on Instagram and also at Duke the Dumpster Official. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Real Duke Drosy because Duke the Dumpster Official was apparently taken. But um, Hmm. that's all my social media. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm doing. And anybody that ever wants to get in touch with me, man, you can just message me on, on Facebook. That's how all the promoters are getting in touch with me and we're booking stuff. So that's the easiest way. That is great, and I know firsthand on Facebook you are quite the follow, if you will. I mean, there's so many great stories you always post on there, and it seems like, you know, that 5,000 friend you know, number is one of those things where it's funny. It's like, oh, so who's going to kind of fall off that list? People are dying to get on that list, so it's one of those things like, oh, somebody falls off. Somebody else is just dying to get in there and find out some more stories from Duke to Dumpster. Yeah, and I try to just post everything uh, uh, public now so everybody can read it. Um, you know, that way it's easier. Cause when I first started, it, it was a lot of my stuff was just for friends, you know, cause I, like I said, I was learning this whole process. And I remember one day somebody goes, you should post your stuff publicly so everybody can read it. And I, I remember thinking, man, I don't know if I want everybody reading it. And, uh, this is before everybody really got into the stories. And then I just realized, you know, okay, I will. And I started posting it publicly and the response was great. And, uh, you know, and then again, I'm just having fun and interacting with the fans and just kind of being myself. So uh, it's it's fun. I'm I'm having a blast. All right. Awesome, awesome stuff. Duke the Dumpster, thank you so much for all the time you gave us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been an awesome trip, and you got some awesome stories, and I really appreciate everything you told us today. Well, I appreciate that, and thank you very much. I really, really do appreciate you having me on your show. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.